Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. It's Friday night. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you feeling? Michael, I'm feeling extraordinarily well. The, the sun's come back in the last few days, so big upgrade in my mood. And let's hope the rest of August, we've got about 20 days left, is a little bit better than July. So we could do with some good weather. Amen. Um, I'm sure whoever's watching this from, from whatever political persuasion, uh, that was a statement there from Aaron to bring everyone together. Uh, coming up tonight, yet more on Dan Wooten and the growing allegations around the GB News host. We'll be talking about why that hasn't got the attention that some other similar stories have. Hugh Grant speaks out about everything wrong with the British media and a controversial video of an arrest made by West Yorkshire police has gone viral. First story. It's been only four days since the first asylum seekers were placed on the Bibby Stockholm. All week we have been reassured it's a perfectly safe place for people to stay, with some right-wing commentators complaining it's, in fact, too luxurious. Well, today we've discovered this. An outbreak of Legionella bacteria has forced all migrants to leave the Bibby Stockholm. The mirror says that all those on board are to be transferred to new accommodation as a precautionary measure. They also report this. Legionella bacteria, which is commonly found in water, is a lung infection you can get from inhaling droplets of water from things like air conditioning or hot tubs. It's uncommon, but it can cause a serious lung infection called Legionnaire's disease. None of those on the barge have shown signs of having the disease. They also say this. It is believed the bacteria has come from the pipes on the vessel, as points of entry to the vessel have shown no indication of Legionella. Just two days ago, this is what Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick said about the Bibi Stockholm. Do you agree with what Lee Anderson says? Should illegal migrants F off back to France? Well, look, we all choose our own language, but what Lee was expressing was the deep frustration of the British public, not just at the numbers of people crossing the Channel, but the apparent refusal of some people to accept perfectly decent accommodation on this barge. You've got to remember that this is a form of accommodation that's being used in Belgium, in the Netherlands, uh, has been used by British oil and gas workers. And so, you know, if it's good enough for them, it should be good enough for uh, the migrants as well. We'll always house people in decent, legally compliant accommodation, but it's not right that people can pick and choose and expect to be put up in four-star hotels. And that's the change that we're bringing about. Robert Jenrick was there making the claim this barge was good enough for oil and gas workers, so it should be good enough for people seeking asylum. Of course, he forgot to mention that they've now doubled the barge's capacity. Living in close quarters, of course, could be a real health threat. This is from the Mirror again. It emerged last night that an asylum seeker with tuberculosis had been told they are set to be moved onto the Bibby Stockholm barge. Other migrants to be put on the vessel include those waiting for surgery and mental health support. A doctor treating the TB patient warned of a public health catastrophe. Dr. Dominic Metz, a GP for more than 250 asylum seekers in Oxfordshire, told the I newspaper one of his patients who is under active treatment for latent TB is to be housed on the vessel. In total, 10 of his patients have received letters from the Home Office notifying them they are to be moved to the barge. He said the department is unable to access medical records, so are not aware of people's conditions before they are transferred. Dr. Metz has contacted the government to tell them the 222-room barge, which is set to house 500 migrants in rooms of up to six people, would be medically inappropriate. He said, quote, I feel they are being treated like livestock, only slightly worse, as livestock are prohibited from being transported with active infections. The Fire Brigade's union have said this. 
The government said the health and safety checks were done. Now the Bibby Stockholm has been evacuated because of Legionella. They've also said the fire safety is fine, despite operating at more than double occupancy. Do you trust them? So there's been a dispute between and the fire brigade and the government as to whether or not the Bibby Stockholm is fire safe. Um, they are quite rightly, I think, suggesting, should we trust the government when they say it's fire safe when they couldn't guarantee it was safe from deadly bacteria? Aaron, what do you make of this story? I mean, it's only been a week and people are already being removed from this barge. There's a key political lesson here, Michael, which is if you set up something as a sort of totemic piece of policy, which you're going to use as exemplary to the electorate, particularly your own political base, uh, in regards to a hugely salient political issue, again, for the Tory base, that is immigration, undocumented migration, you have to get it right because the downsides of getting it wrong are you've made the issue yet more salient and you have failed to provide solution. I think it's a really big mistake for them. I think it's been really ill-judged. The whole focus on small boats was something of a sort of Hail Mary for the Conservatives, right? This is going to be the issue they think they can really make hay at with at the next election. Um, but we've seen firstly with Randa, now with this, look, you can talk about pie-in-the-sky sort of solutions, which are very popular with lots of people, and it's important to say this stuff is popular with the majority of the electorate. They, they support it. The left might not, but a majority of the electorate supports it. If you can't execute, you can't deliver. It's not just failing to live up to expectations. It's a net negative. You've made a problem for yourself. And we see this repeatedly with the Tories. You know, they And I don't think immigration to this country should be the tens of thousands. David Cameron said that in 2010. But the problem is, if you don't deliver on that, your own base, natural conservatives, people on the right, are going to get more and more angry with you. Now, as somebody on the left, obviously it's good that the Tories are discredited, they're not taken seriously for what is an inhumane and unworkable policy. That's good. The problem, however, is, Michael, there's a big political overhead that comes with all of this, which is that when the Conservatives or an allegedly centre-right party does us something like this, they, they offer things like Rwanda, like prison barges, and they fail to deliver, well, into that political space comes the far right. And I think that's the big worry really, for after 2024, 2025, when hopefully uh, we have a, a government of a different kind of complexion, because they're still going to be using that rhetoric. They'll still be talking about these quote-unquote policy solutions, but they can't implement them for a host of reasons. And, and I think that offers a huge space to ultra-nationalists all the way through to neo-Nazis, frankly. What's especially worrying, I mean, obviously, the, the, the health threat too the asylum seekers who've already been put on this barge is, is incredibly worrying. But in terms of the public discourse about this, we've already set up this, well, not us personally, but the government and the right-wing media have already set up this debate to be migrants being put through poor conditions is actually a good thing because that will disincentivize more from coming, right? So where does it end? I can imagine there will be many people who are sort of you know open to that kind of argument who will hear about Legionella bacteria in a barge and say, well, why have we taken them off? This is a disincentive. You know, that is sort of the logic um, that the Tories have been pushing. So there is that where does this end argument. It's not clear to me that this will sort of increase sympathy. And I suppose that's you know, the government in a way are sort of celebrating the chaos of this almost. On the topic of migration, BBC Newsnight is taking some heat for some of their coverage this week. On Wednesday, um, they tweeted this. So there's a quote um, from a migrant they've spoken to. I left my country, the Gambia, because I felt I could not realise my dream there. And then they write as their caption, um, former refugee Mustafa Jarju explains why he crossed the Mediterranean to reach Europe in 2015 after it emerges that 41 migrants died today on the same route. So this is um, a slightly different but related story. This was about um, the, the ship that sank 
in the Mediterranean. We spoke about that at, at the time. Um, let's go to the, the video that's attached to that tweet. You left the Gambia age 15. You went through all these countries. Then you made the treacherous journey in the dinghy. Why did you leave your home to, tr to get to Europe? Good evening to everybody. Um, I think, first of all, uh, I left my country because uh, each and every one of us has the right uh, to freedom of movement. We are all born free without cane, so we all have the right to move to wherever we want to move. And in certain situations, people move also because of political reasons, because of social reasons, and also because of economic reasons. I left my country, the Gambia, because I felt that I could not realize my dream there. At the same time, I was going to school, but at a certain point, I became a dropout because education in Africa, especially in Gambia, it's very expensive. So I left my country in order to pursue for higher education. Okay. And you would have known that getting in that boat to cross the Mediterranean could have, could, could have killed you. Why did that not stop you? I mean, uh, when people decide to, 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 to make this journey, they will decide, they decide to make the journey. I decided to left my country in order to reach Europe because I wanted to realize my dream. Even when uh, reaching in Libya, I know that what I am about to do, the crossing that I'm, I, I am about to make, it's very risky, it's very dangerous, but I have no option. Like, I could not go back because going back, it's dangerous, and I could not stay in Libya because Libya, there is no rule, there is no law. People live within in, in the law, that the survival of the fetus, the survival of the fetus. So I have no option but to leave. I could not stay in Libya. As you all know, Libya is politically instable. Now, I personally found that account, you know, very moving. Um, I think it was very persuasive. Obviously, I think if I didn't feel I could sort of achieve my dream in the country I was in, I would want to move to a different country. I think it also shows how, I suppose, ridiculous it is to sort of say, oh, well, if we impose enough suffering on people trying to get here, then people will stop coming. I think what what that person um, really showed is sort of, if you really want to get somewhere, you will try, right? How, however dangerous. But lots of, I think, right-wing people essentially um, responded to this in a different way. So this is the response from author Rakib Assan. So he's like a more of a centre-right academic, I think. So he said this, this very much sounds like a cause of economic migration, no mention of fleeing an immediate threat of violence and persecution in his homeland. Britain should provide sanctuary for the very most persecuted peoples, not be an international outpost to maximise global welfare. Um, and then we've got another tweet from who I think we can definitely call a, a hard-right journalist, really. Douglas Murray said, Europe cannot be the destination for anyone in the world who feels they could not realise their dream in their country of origin. Aaron, I suppose I put these tweets in there and that clip in there because, in a way, when it comes to sort of talking about the Conservatives on migration, you know, I don't feel particularly complicated about it. You know, all, all they are doing is is promising to have performative cruelty against people seeing fleeing persecution and being very, very dishonest about migration. You know, they're constantly lying. They're constantly demonizing people. It is, you know, it's very easy to argue against. I mean, I know that lots of people in the country agree with the conservatives on this, but in terms of, is it rational what they're arguing? No, right? It's, it's very easy, I feel, sort of personally countering the narrative being put forward by the Tories. And I obviously have no sympathy with Douglas Murray either. But why I think this is interesting is because, you know, from that account, it didn't seem obvious that that person was an asylum seeker. It didn't seem obvious they were fleeing political persecution. And so you, there is going to be an argument from the right, but also the centre and probably also the centre-left to say, well, yes, this person shouldn't be prioritised. And I suppose 
the question I want to ask you is, how do we talk about migration more generally? You know, it's very, very easy to counter the most obnoxious, horrific policies put forward by this conservative government. But I do feel like left, right, not really anyone has a sort of answer to the question of what about the, the millions of people who want a better life, who might, not be in, who might not be subject to political persecution, but just want to achieve their dreams. How, how do we incorporate that into a sort of progressive migration policy? How, how do we respond to that? Michael, a brilliant question. I won't be able to give you a compelling answer, I'm afraid, because I don't think anybody has. I mean, firstly, with regards to that gentleman, if I was him, I would have done the exact same thing. And I totally understand his logic. But it's very important to say, Michael, from what he said, and maybe he's not said the entire story for many reasons. Uh, and, you know, that's that's fine. He's, he's perfectly at liberty to withhold certain details. From what he said, um, that doesn't sound commensurate with a successful asylum case. That's just, he's, he's, you know, he's, his reasons for um, moving to another country were not because he was fleeing persecution, uh, various kinds of oppression, uh, famine, etc., natural disasters. They sound like something else, right? I.e. he wants to uh, achieve something with regards to his personal ambitions. He wants to live, live out his dream, which is great, he, by the way all 8 billion people on planet Earth should be able to do that. Um, and obviously any socialist thinks that regardless of where they live or, or their color or creed. However, I think it is perfectly sensible, or at least honest to say, well, I don't quite understand how given our asylum policy, given our refugee policy, how with that logic and rationale, he would fall into that category. I think that's quite obvious. Uh, then of course you have a secondary argument, which is, well, should he be permitted to come here because that's his dream? You know, I, I support something like a green card policy, frankly, which is, you know, almost like a lottery policy. And uh, doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how talented you are, or, you know, a bunch of variables kind of, it's, it's, it's really about luck. It's about, it's like sortition, you know, anybody can, anybody, that is a dream, right? Anybody can, can get it. And of course you can apply multiple times. And I think that's, I think that's a good policy. I think it's a good idea. And I think right now what we have, because we have such a, a mean policy with regards to various peoples from the global south, particularly low-income countries in, in places like sub-Saharan Africa, those people can't come here through regular routes, right? Um, and that, that shouldn't be the case. There should be a possibility for people like that to come here to live their dream, okay? Now, Douglas Murray would say, well, that means that they can all come. Well, look, I'm just saying there should be a legal, regularized way of doing that. I've just offered one, which is, of course, the green card. And, and I think this, this works both ways, right? On the one hand, that option should exist for them. On the other hand, if you want to do what that gentleman's done, come here to, to educate yourself, get a job, to live a good life, you shouldn't have to go through the torment of, you know, going over the English Channel on a rubber dinghy, going into a detention center for several years, huge amounts of money being paid, by the way, on the, by the taxpayer for a highly inefficient, you know, overly bureaucratized system, which, you know, the Tories love dragging out because it gives them political capital, but doesn't really help anybody else. Uh, so I think there's lots of issues there. And then finally, we do have um, large sections of the world, Michael, who can broadly migrate on the basis of their dreams, right? If if, if Michael Walker uh, decided to be a digital nomad and you want to go and work from Thailand, Michael, let's say you fall out with me, you leave Navarra Media and your Substack and podcast become immensely popular, you can do that from pretty much anywhere in the world. Pretty much. Okay. Um, if you want to go and live in the United States, UK national, it won't be easy, easy, but if you're really determined, if you look for the job offers, you know, you're committed to it, it's almost certain to happen. That's not the case for people from much of the global South. 
So I think there's a really strong double standard here, particularly from somebody like Douglas Murray, who's a UK national who regularly works and, and I think at some points in his life has lived in the United States. Sorry, you can't do your dream, but I can. Why? Well, because I have white skin. Because I'm from a high-income country. That seems deeply unfair. So there's a few interesting points here, Michael, I think. On the one hand, his, his account clearly isn't commensurate with, with yeah, gaining refugee status. On the other hand, I think we should have regularized means for some people from the global south to come here, even if they're not uh, fleeing persecution. And then finally, yes, some people can do precisely what that man is saying on Newsnight. They can go live elsewhere to follow their dreams. The point is they're from wealthier countries and they tend to be white. I suppose the reason I bring this up specifically is because this is one of the ones where I feel genuinely like I do not know the answer. Like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to make sort of like reformist arguments often and feel quite comfortable with them. You know me, Aaron, I was at Glastonbury sort of saying, I don't think we should abolish the police. I'm fairly, you know, comfortable morally with the idea that you have some collectively agreed laws and you have a division of labor where there's some people who have the specific job to enforce them. I absolutely think we should scrutinize the police more than we do. I think we should, um, you know, fight abuse by the police and make sure that they're you know, not institutionally racist as they currently are. But I think that idea in theory is both practically and morally okay with me. With borders, I, I just don't know because I do, I do think it is pretty morally indefensible to have borders, two nations at the same time. I'm not convinced by the practicality of, of complete open borders, which is why I put out a tweet today saying, please recommend me books on sort of like practical immigration policy because I think in this sphere especially, understandably, we hear a lot of critique um, and, and slightly less sort of positive proposals for what a decent immigration system could actually look like, because I think it is just a fundamentally incredibly difficult question. Let's move on to our next story. It tends to be the left who get most agitated about abuses of police power, but a new viral video on TikTok has got many on the right outraged. This is the headline in the mail. Moment seven officers drag autistic girl 16 kicking and screaming from Leeds home for committing a hate crime after she told female cop, you look like my lesbian nana. And uh, the subheading, the girl hid in her hallway and was filmed being dragged away screaming. The story is based on a TikTok video which has been viewed millions of times across social media. It shows police arresting a 16-year-old girl in her own house after she apparently um, told a police officer she looked like her lesbian nana. Now, it's very uncomfortable footage. Um, we're going to show you it now, or at least part of it now. She's got autism. Can you just stand there? She's in a cupboard. She can't go anywhere. She can't go anywhere. Stand there, dear. They're going to remove her for what? With your, your woman? Then she said the word lesbian. Her nana is a lesbian. She's married to a woman. She's not on the phone. Look what you're clenching your fist. Go away from my teenage daughter. You, there is something wrong with you, mate. She's autistic. She don't like people touching her. Well, she will have a meltdown. She won't come out. She's got autism. I'm well, Lisa. So she can come out. We're trying not to do this, aren't we? We've been trying for a long time. But she hasn't done nothing wrong. That officer out there has assaulted me for no reason. She's got autism. She's autistic, man. That clip, which has understandably caused a lot of outrage. Um, in response, West Yorkshire Police have said this. They've given this statement. Um, this is from Oz Khan, the Assistant Chief Constable of the Police Force. We are aware of a video circulating on social media, which, as is often the case, only provides a very limited snapshot of the circumstances of this incident. 
Officers had their body-worn video cameras activated during their wider involvement with this young girl, which provides additional context to their actions. We have received a complaint in relation to this incident, which is currently being assessed by West Yorkshire Professional Standards Directorate. While that ongoing process and the active criminal investigation limit our ability to fully discuss the incident in detail, we feel it is important for people to have some context about the circumstances. Interestingly, they don't actually offer Um, the context about those circumstances. Now, Aaron, we don't know too much about the broader context here. I think the the young girl was apparently sort of drunk and disorderly, potentially sort of in a city centre. So it might be the case that there had been um, some sort of dispute going on for a reasonably long time before this interaction took place. I think one of the reasons it's sort of really taken off in sort of right-wing political spaces, both on Twitter and on GB News, Talk TV, and in papers like the Daily Mail, is because there's a bit of an attempt to pitch this as a story about sort of the rights of LGBT people versus, you know, the rights to be treated reasonably by the police. So they're sort of pitching this as, you know, this this was a, a vulnerable person who said something about the police officer looking like a lesbian, and then they have, because of, you know, woke culture gone mad, completely overreacted. I don't think we know enough to sort of confirm that narrative, but it was incredibly uncomfortable footage. And I mean, it does seem like something has gone wrong there, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd be very reticent to say that it's, you know, that, that I mean, that wasn't my read on it whatsoever, Michael, I have to be honest. The line said by the young woman who allegedly has autism, and like you say, we, we, have, to, we have to get all the details out of here, right? That will come out. But if we, if we go on the basis of what the mother said in that footage, this is a 16-year-old with autism, the fact they were punching themselves in the head and crying and screaming would suggest that, you know, that wasn't a reaction you would expect from a normal, if I say normal person, you, you know what I mean? That, that is not the reaction you'd expect from somebody who's, it's a hard thing to say, right? Because most 16 year olds aren't presented with the fact you have multiple police officers in your house coming to arrest you after you've had a few drinks. So, I, you know, what's the baseline behavior that you would expect from a child? But I think punching yourself in the head, you would think that that um, would have caused some alarm amongst the officers. Uh, and I think the exact words she used were, you look like my nana who's a lesbian, or you look like a lesbian like my nana, something like this. So the anchor in the, in the, in the thing that she said was that you resemble a family member who's a lesbian. And again, the mother says that the, the, the child's uh, grandma is in fact a lesbian woman, they're married to another woman. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily indicate malicious intent. Fine. That said, clearly, police officers shouldn't be subject to racist or homophobic uh, taunts while they're doing their job. But I think a bit of discretion and common sense is, is probably quite useful here. The really important thing for me, the really important, really interesting thing for me, is the fact that clearly, from what we've seen, I think, and from what we know so far, the officer in question made a bad judgment call. They made a bad call, and they're immediately backed up on it by all of their colleagues. So her colleagues see that child punching themselves in the head. They say, you're only making this worse. Come with us, et cetera. Nobody's behaving with any kind of sensitivity. It seems none of them have been trained for this, which I find remarkable given how many are there. You know, it's not one or two officers. There's about six or seven people there. You think some of them would have had training to deal with this kind of uh, situation. And none of her colleagues have said, hey, take a step back. Is this the right thing? Do you think we should do this? No. She's made a call. I think she's probably lost her head a little bit. And all of her colleagues have doubled down. And ultimately, ultimately they're responsible for a very bad decision. A very bad decision. And it's something we see time after time after time, Michael. I've seen so many cases where one officer sparks uh, a confrontation with people. Other people try and defend that person. 
and then you have a public order situation caused by the police. And rather than their colleagues saying that wasn't that wasn't professional, that wasn't acceptable, it's clearly not professional behaviour, by the way, what's happened there, I think, from what we know. Rather than say that, they double down and protect their colleague. Now, thank God, in this instance, it was recorded. If that wasn't recorded, Michael, that could have ended very differently. You know, uh, the, the, the child would end up being, you know, uh, charged with assaulting an officer. I'm not saying that would have happened. I'm saying I have seen that kind of thing happen time after time after time. One officer makes a bad call. Colleagues double down and back them. Rather than admit they didn't uh, act properly or unprofessional and made a mistake, they punish the person who they'd already punished. They punish them twice. They punish them for the arrest. And then they punish them again to legitimate the arrest. They assaulted me, for instance. Assaulted a police officer. I've seen it so many times, Michael, when nothing has happened. Uh, so it's a really disturbing video. Really disturbing. And again, if that's how they behave in those kinds of situations where I think they're clearly in the wrong, it does make you wonder, Michael. You know, maybe some of these people are in the wrong job. Maybe some of these people should be in a different job. If you can't use common sense and discretion with regards to a, a child with autism saying something which, okay, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's not nice, but you can let it go over your head if you know the context and where they're coming from. If you can't do that, then you probably shouldn't be a police officer. Because one of the first jobs of a police officer is to keep public order. You're creating public disorder if you can't manage those kinds of situations. A few comments on terminology, I think it's probably useful to, to read out. So a few people saying neurotypical was probably the word you were looking for, Aaron. Um, and then we have a, a, another comment. As an autistic adult, I just chuckled at the normal stumble. Um, and someone else says, that's what my autistic meltdowns look like and I'm 30. Too. Um, so lots of interesting comments there. I, mean, I suppose one of the things I thought looking at that video, Aaron, is I was, I was reading this, I think, when it came to sort of American policing, to say one of the reasons that you, you get sort of escalation when police can be involved is the sort of pride which comes with, well, we've told them they're under arrest. So unless we arrest them now, we have sort of showed ourselves up in some way. And I think presumably it seems like in that situation, whatever the context, it probably would have made sense to say, okay, um, this situation is one that actually we should probably back away from. Um, this person is probably not a, a, a threat that they're going to, you know, suddenly elope. So presumably they can go away, come back tomorrow and have a more sort of reasoned discussion with the family and see if any consequences might come of this. The, the idea that however distressing a situation gets, we've told them they're under arrest. So now we have to arrest them. Otherwise our authority is, is, is completely damaged. I think potentially we need to sort of teach police officers that you don't have to be so proud about these things, right? Sometimes you're going to tell someone they're under arrest and they're going to you're not going to arrest them because the uh, the best thing to do to sort of limit harm in that situation is to just back off and say, okay, okay, actually, we'll we'll come back tomorrow. I mean, what, what do you make of that, Aaron? Before we move on, I think you're speaking common sense and you're speaking like a like an intelligent adult, Michael. The idea of just going back the next day, okay, let's take the sting out of this. We'll see you tomorrow. That's not how you should speak to a police officer. I understand you've had a few drinks. Your mother's made these remarks, um, which add context to us. We'll come back tomorrow. But at the same time, Michael, look, it's not, the, it's not necessarily the job of that officer there who's been the target of the original statement. There should be a more senior officer there. Surely, there's so many of them. Surely there's a sergeant or somebody to say, I think we've made the wrong decision here, guys. Okay, we're, we're just going to double, we're just going to not double down. We're going to double back. We're going to reverse in corporate speak. We're going to go back to half an hour ago and pretend a lot of this hasn't happened and, and reconsider things. Um, or the custody sergeant. You know, if they take that young person 
into the local police station. They put them into custody for a few hours. Surely the custody sergeant asks those officers the questions and says, okay, why are they here? What have they done? Okay, the mum says this. She's screaming. She's punching herself in the head. Mm, I mean, if you were the custody sergeant, surely you would think that your colleagues, sorry, excuse my French, were fucking idiots. Surely. So I think it really falls also onto the, on the, onto the more senior officers. You know, and they do, they do seem to have doubled down on this. We'll see how it goes. There was a subsequent statement. Um, we'll see how it goes. It is deeply, deeply, deeply alarming. You're meant to be, this is the thing, Michael, I've said it so many times. In industry after industry in this country, there is just such an absence of professionalism. Professionalism, pride in what you do for a job. Now, we, we talk about it repeatedly with journalists, with politicians, they don't take themselves seriously. You know, a journalist who wants to be friends with a politician, you're not taking yourself seriously as a professional. There should be a slight frisson. They should be slightly, you know, nervous around you. They should be, that's your job, okay? Uh, equally with, with police officers, now, I have a much broader structural criticism of the police, particularly the London Metropolitan Police. Park that for a moment, however. You're meant to be professionals. You're meant to take yourself seriously. You're meant to safeguard the public. You're meant to prevent crime. And if you can't prevent it, to solve it. You're meant to create a public order, not public disorder. Okay? And if you're not doing that, then I think you probably need to look at yourself in the mirror. And again, like I say, I ask yourself, am I in the right job? I, I, I suspect she probably isn't. Maybe it's just a one-off. I mean, maybe I'm being incredibly unfair. But you can't, you clearly can't carry on like that. You clearly can't carry on like that with, with, with a 16-year-old girl who has autism. There'll be all kinds of people in the community where there's really vital context that counts and means you can't treat them like you would treat somebody else. Uh, and like I say, if you can't do that, find another job. Got a super chat from Anne Hayfield. My tiny black lesbian friend had to be sectioned and they turn up in a minibus. Um, yeah, I mean, it does seem like just turning up with seven police officers is often very inappropriate in these situations. I mean, I have to say there are, I mean, there was a story recently, I think, saying that the police are now refusing to turn up to situations like that. So it's not as if the police are gagging to be responsible for mental health in the community. Although, I mean, in, in this situation, clearly, um, it does seem like they should have just taken a step back. Let's move on to our next story, also related to sort of viral TikTok videos. It is the summer after all. On Thursday's show, we showed you some clashes that took place on Oxford Street this week. To jog your memory, here's some footage from the event. Scenes like that took place after crowds, police and the media amassed in central London after viral TikTok posts advertised a mass robbery of JD Sports. We also showed you Suella Braverman's response. She said, those responsible should be hunted down and locked up. Now, I want to look at some of the broader reactions from journalists and academics to this incident because the whole thing prompted a rather interesting debate, I think. So the economist Mariana Matsukato said this, Oxford Street disorder, Bravman wants culprits hunted down. My take, invest in public swimming pools, well-run youth clubs, community centres, mental health programmes, summer activities, care for youth, cost of inaction greater than cost of action. Um, I think a very reasonable tweet. Um, lots of people on the right got very upset about it. Um, Tom Harwood from GB News said this, do we really think that without free swimming pools, the default human condition is to steal stuff? Really? Um, obviously, he missed out the, the rest of the tweet. Um, and then we've got a tweet from our very own Aaron Bastani, um, who in response to that tweet from Tom Harwood says, I think young men with nothing to do and time on their hands are more likely to get mixed up in trouble, certainly. That's not the solution here necessarily, but it's absolutely true. 
Any sensible person knows that. Obviously, people are responsible for their own actions, but it's a basic question that societies have always had to deal with. What do you do with young men with bags of energy and not much to do? In the past, that category of people has done much more than steel trainers. Absolutely correct. Um, and then this was the tweet that was a bit more controversial. I've always supported a national service that does stuff around care work, climate change, etc. Give young people an experience to meet others from totally different backgrounds, broaden horizons, learn skills, actual ones been attacked for saying it a few times. Aaron, I'm relatively sympathetic to that idea. Um, lots of people aren't, though. Um, pitch it. Do you, do you really want a sort of a, a civilian national service, or is this a sort of a, an idea that you think might be worth sort of thinking about more deeply? So quickly, Michael, on the Mariana Mazzucato thing, what she said is entirely true, right? And I know so, like, it's so controversial. And, of course, the right can't engage with this. Nobody's saying that no, no kids would do no, nothing bad. There would be no crime. There would be no um, shoplifting if you had all these nice things. Nobody's saying that. The point is, when you have a, a, an episode like you saw on Oxford Street, most of those kids are just there for a laugh to see what happens. They've got nothing else to do. Their mate's gone down or some, some kid they know who's funny, bad kid in their you know, class has gone down and they... They just want to see what goes down. They want to see what happens. That's most of those kids. Now, if they have alternatives to do like really fun stuff, yeah, a lot of them wouldn't be there. I mean, that's just a simple fact. Um, summer holidays are very expensive for parents. It's a summer holiday. You know, we're in August. That's why all those kids are there, right? Um, I know people like to sort of, a lot of British conservatives like to pretend it's kind of like, you know, escape from LA and that Britain is like, you know, the worst parts of America. Uh, on, on lots of things, we just simply aren't. It's the summer holidays. Kids do stuff. Um, and if you're wealthy, if you're very wealthy, this is the fact, Michael, kids in West London with really wealthy parents from the kinds of backgrounds which many of these conservative commentators are from as well, Michael, those kids will be having the swimming lessons. They'll be doing the football coaching. They might be doing some qualifications. They'll probably be on holiday, right? Going away when mummy and daddy took a pre for three weeks. That's why they ain't looting. That's why they're not on Oxford Street. They're on holiday. Um, so... If you can't afford to do stuff with your kids, which is the case for many working class people in this country, then the kid has to just basically stay at home or hang out with their friends. Okay, good. That's fine. As a kid, I, I did the same thing. It's fun. It's okay. But the point is, you can get dragged into all kinds of stuff. You can. So Mariana's point is correct. Now, on the national service point, uh, this is something I would propose not yeah, every summer. It's something I would propose at 18. And like I say, it's a civic, civilian national service. It's got nothing to do with the military. Uh, and I think it's about creating an environment for everybody in this country, regardless of where they come from, regardless of who their parents are or their income, to understand the meaning of public service and to work alongside people who are nothing like them, which I think is incredibly powerful. You know, kids that go to Eton uh, and their parents are millionaires, working alongside kids from very different kinds of backgrounds. What kind of stuff would they be doing? I think natural restoration. Uh, I think, you know, beginning to build in um, the kinds of measures we need to see in our countryside to address climate change. Building hedgerows, rewilding rivers, cleaning, you know, parts of the, of the countryside. That would be one part. And I also think uh, care work, caring for the elderly, uh, would be another part. And this is very much an equalizing kind of measure. It's to give young people skills, both soft and hard. Uh, and it's to give them an experience which is very practical, using their hands rather than being in the classroom. I think this is a perfectly, you might not agree, okay? You might think it's a bad idea or a waste of resources, that's fine. But I think it's a perfectly sensible proposal. I don't think it's mad or insane. And I certainly don't think it's not left-wing. You know, if you look at the history of left-wing thinking, all the way from Machiavelli to Rousseau to Marx and Lenin, 
they talk about, and I'm not even saying this, they talk about civilian militias. They talk about civilian militias rather than professional armies. So I'm, I'm not even going that far. I'm saying what we want is a national civic service for young people to do really important things, to begin to learn about the great crises of our time, particularly climate change and demographic aging. I think that's a sensible proposal. I don't think there's anything particularly controversial about it, frankly. Also, of course, they should be paid while doing all of that. I think it's a really brilliant opportunity. You leave school, you might want to go to university or you might want to do a vocational qualification um, in eight months' time. Well, great. In the meantime... Uh, or a year's time. In the meantime, you can earn money doing this other stuff. And you're going to be alongside people you've never met before, who you've never known, and who you'd never meet had you not had this experience. I think that's great. And I think one of the reasons why conservatives don't like this, because conservatives don't like it as well, is because it speaks to the possibility of a kind of community deeper than profit, deeper than capital, the idea that people will build ties of solidarity, commonality, maybe even friendship, despite being from very disparate and different backgrounds. That is why conservatives don't like it. So I'm, I'm almost puzzled that, that more people on the left wouldn't think that's a good idea. But, you know, this, there's a tension, isn't there, within, within the left about liberalism and socialism, you know, about compelling people to do things. We compel people to do things all the time. We compel people to pay tax. We compel people to pay, you know, large sums of money. We compel people to go to school. We compel people to do all kinds of things. And, and we do that because we think it's in their rational self-interest or it's in the collective interest. I think this falls into exactly the same category. I am very sympathetic to this argument. I think, obviously, the devil will be in the detail. I can imagine there being lots of sort of citizen services which would be bad. Um, but I think there also could be many that are good. And uh, to be honest, I do think that some of the sort of negative reactions to this from the right or from wealthier liberals is to say, well, I don't want my, my kids should be doing their law degree. You know, it'd be a waste of their time. The division of labor um, that makes the economy so efficient means that they should be doing different things to poorer kids. Why would we make them do the same thing um, at that vital year of, of, of being 18 or whatever? In my sort of more activisty days, I did a sort of action where it stopped some planes taking off from stance that it was against sort of second, them having a second runway. I was only 18. And I got 50 hours of community service. And it was actually really, you know, I think it was quite productive. Like it was just picking up litter from around my home borough. Like I would, I would hope that, you know, a, a national citizen service would be a bit more creative than that. But it was really interesting being like alongside so many people from different backgrounds, different ages, like having incredibly just interesting conversations with people. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't regret doing it at all. And I do think the idea of people doing that kind of thing, you shouldn't have to commit a crime to, to pick up litter with your fellow citizens. <laughs> Let's put it like that. The way that these conversations have been had isn't just about sort of how do we increase sort of civic understanding and solidarity between people. It's in a story really about crime. And in that situation, sort of in that context, I do often think these debates happen um, really based on anecdotes, right? So often a bit divorced from data from reality, in fact. So I wanted to check that youth violence is, or to what extent it is, an increasing problem. Because obviously lots of the discourse here, oh my God, society is running out of control, the kids are not all right, we need to intervene. I'm not entirely sure um, that's the case. Let's look at some of the statistics. So these are government statistics on the number of proven offences by children. It shows that over the past decade, they have completely collapsed. Now, that's probably a surprising chart to many people. Now, as you can see, there were around 170,000 proven offences by children in 2012. That number has fallen every year since and now stands at below 35,000. 
Now, of course, um, that might not be proof of a genuine fall in crime or a genuine fall in misbehaviour. I mean, it could be the result of less effective policing or a change in which types of crime result in a charge. Um, the government, though, also provides data on proven offences involving a weapon. Um, so here the trend looks less positive, right? Though still not clear cut. So as you can see, offences with a weapon went down from 3,500 in 2012 to around 2,600 in 2014. They then rose every year until 2018 when they peaked at 4,500 offences per year. After 2018, they stabilised at that high level before falling during the pandemic. And we've got another interesting data point as well. So this gets around both changes in policing and changes in the law, changes in policing practices. This is for all ages though, so it's not just for youth um, or youths or young people. So it shows the number of hospital admissions every year in the UK following assault by a sharp instrument. As you can see, it peaked in 2006 at almost 6,000 admissions per year. It then fell every year until 2014, reaching around 4,000. Between 2014 and 2018, it increased every year, hitting 5,000 admissions per year before falling during the pandemic. Aaron, I suppose it is, it is difficult to get a kind of non-biased view of of what crimes are being committed, especially in, in detail. But I don't think looking at the statistics, it does show that, oh my God, young people are completely out of control at the moment. I mean, if anything, it seems like crime is falling or stable. So do you think sometimes, you know, when you turn on GB News or whatever, they're having a conversation which is quite divorced from, from reality? Totally. I mean, that's not to say that crime, you know, doesn't exist and that, you know, it's not an important issue for many people. But the idea that it's historically high um, it is simply untrue. And, you, you know, I think anybody who, who, who grew up and lived through the 80s, 90s knows this. Anybody. Okay. Anybody. I mean, my God, I remember in the 90s, early 90s, the amount of break-ins you'd have with cars to steal car radios, to steal handbags, to steal the car. You know, that is no longer a crime that really exists to the same extent. I mean, it happens occasionally, but this was like a, this was a daily occurrence in every town and city in this country. It would happen. It was very common. Um, in the early 2000s, the, the amount of like drink-induced violence was in, in, in Britain's like town centres, city centres, was immeasurably higher than it is now. And I have to say, young people today, they drink less, they, they take fewer drugs, etc. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, depends on, on the substance, like that. Um, but they're very quote-unquote well-behaved compared to older generations or previous generations. And I think they get a really bad rep. I feel really sorry for them. Like I, especially in London, and again, there's this kind of racist angle, very racist coverage, right? Of young black boys, so dangerous. The most respectful, polite people I've met of young people are, are young kids of African heritage. I swear to God. Um, and also uh, kids raised um, in, in Muslim communities, very religious, observant communities, incredibly polite, well-spoken, lovely. Now, let's not say that people not from those communities can't also be the same. But it's just so at odds with the media representations of, of those people. I mean, I live briefly by, um, by the East London Mosque in, in, uh, in Whitechapel. Love, like, zero, zero crime. <laughs> zero crime, right? Lovely people. And in a very ethnically diverse area. Again, really taking on some of the sort of, let's be honest, the racist undertones of all this stuff. Um, so uh, you're absolutely right, Michael. Uh, the idea that crime is getting worse is, I think, nonsensical. The idea, however, that you know fewer crimes are being solved now, I think that's inarguable. I think the police are doing a terrible job on, on daily stuff, right? Like burglary, being mugged, etc., uh, regular theft. You know, the, 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 the rates at which these things are being solved were always low. 
but they're much lower now. I mean, the, the, the police have never been solving a majority of crime. I wrote a piece about this for Navarra a year or two ago. Maybe we can put that, that in, the, in the comments or in the description or whatever. Uh, and the numbers are pretty obvious that, you know, the police don't so solve most crimes. They never have done. But we really are at historic lows here. So I think that's right, Michael. We're looking at a moral panic here, which serves a particular political purpose from uh, people on the right. Now, that's not to say that there aren't very real problems, like we should be investing more in young people from working class and, and middle class backgrounds who, whose parents aren't extraordinarily rich to be able to do stuff in the summer rather than just be bored and hang around on their phones or maybe go around, play PlayStation with their mates. There's always time for that, but you probably don't want to do that for six weeks. And those opportunities to do other things should be open to, to kids of all backgrounds. But yeah, the idea that this is worse than ever before, complete nonsense. I will say one quick thing as well, Michael. I did probation. I think I probably did significantly more probation than you did because I was, um, I was found guilty of violent disorder on a protest many years ago. I threw a bottle at somebody, heaven forbid the building, um, a, a plastic bottle, dare I say. Um, and I did uh, a fair bit of community service. And like you say, I did it with, um, it was brilliant. It was, it was probably too long. It was about 200 hours, 180 hours, but it was brilliant. It was with kids basically from minorities because I was in South London and older people of all, all backgrounds. There was um, a couple of black ladies. There was a, a white guy. Um, there was a couple of white people of like non-British background, Polish guy. Honestly, Wonderful people, very fun. I learned a lot. I learned a hell of a lot as a human being and how much we share and the kindness of, of, of so many of these guys and also the probation officers. Very funny, interesting people. Both were Jamaican. Um, one first generation, uh, one second generation. Really kind people. So it taught me a lot. It really opened my eyes, Michael, and, and, and how much you share with, with citizens and other people, you know, who you share a community with, a national community with, who you would never normally, I wouldn't normally be with a 17-year-old kid of West Indian heritage having to hang out for half an hour, an hour, and make small talk and talk about stuff. I was. It was great. So, uh, you know, I, that to me buttresses the argument I made earlier on around a shared national service, non-military. Uh, people can disagree with that, but I think that the, the opportunities to have those kinds of conversations and, and spaces for dialogue are really important. We don't have them. Next story. We've been covering lots of the stories by Byline Times into allegations against Dan Wooden. And this one's a little bit of a corker. And um, that's because for the first time, they've got people to talk on record. And um, so the headline is this, Dan Wooden's celebrity targets revealed. And the celebrity targets they spoke to are the only way is Essex star Kirk Norcross, Big Brother contestant JJ Bird, and an X Factor singer in his early 20s. Um, on his interaction with Wooden, Bird told Byline this, Dan told me he was an amateur photographer and was working with underwear brands. He invited me to a test shoot at his flat with a fee attached. At that time, I was trying to fund my boxing career and develop my career in entertainment. Dan was a big name in the world of showbiz journalism who had the power to do that, plus anything where I was going to receive payment would obviously have been very useful. Looking back now, it was a complete abuse of power and position, and he should not have been offering to do that kind of thing. Byline go on to report this. Mr. Bird said Wooden contacted him first on Facebook, claiming, quote, there is one person who I'm working for at the moment who's really keen to get you for work. In later messages, Wooden changed it to two people I'm working with, adding, quote, it's just a test shoot, so low key, so not for publication, we'll still pay, obviously. And then a quote from Wooten, 
just you in various sportswear, swimwear, underwear, which are run by the man I'm working for before he decides how to do a full shoot, which could be for publication. Just to be certain, could you text or email me a quick shot of you shirtless now? But I'm pretty sure we'll want to go ahead now because we don't necessarily need you mega ripped. Anyway, Wooden followed up by saying the shoot would be at mine in E1, adding that they also want to know if you will do a couple of nude shots too, because they do a lot of that and they don't necessarily need your face in. Mr. Bird declined and told Byline Times, quote, I wasn't having any of that. Byline also write up this account from a celebrity they haven't named. So I think this is the, the singer um, in their early 20s. Dan invited me to do a test shoot for some underwear brand for £1,000. I went along thinking it was a semi-pro shoot and might help my career because Dan was, at the time, on ITV's Lorraine show and working for the biggest papers. The studio was just his front room. It felt really awkward, especially as he was so well-known. There was nobody else there, just us. There was no backdrop or anything like that, despite Dan telling me it was a shoot for these brands. He just gave me normal boxer shoots to wear. I changed into them in his bedroom. I thought it was all strange, but rolled with it. He was so influential, I didn't want to offend him somehow. Then the stuff he was asking me to wear became more and more revealing and alarm bells started to ring. He brought out latex stuff, which I refused to wear. He also asked me to pose nude, but I refused to do that too. The whole situation was weird and was not what I was expecting. Dan refused to pay me the full fee we'd agreed because I wouldn't go nude. It creeped me out. Dan Wooden Hansen or his team haven't responded um, to those particular allegations um, from Byline. I mean, what do I think about this? Why are we talking about this? You might be watching this thinking this is just gossip. You know, no laws were broken here. I mean, it doesn't seem like any laws were broken in, in, in this particular case. I think it is creepy, though, and I think it is deceptive. Um, it, it seems to be deceptive if you're telling people we're going to do these shoots because I know people um, who, you know, might work in fashion, et cetera, et cetera, and then you're asking people to do quite compromising stuff. I mean, it doesn't seem pleasant. And the criminal thing I think is interesting because when it came to sort of Philip Schofield or Hugh Edwards, what some people were saying is this is a storm in a teacup because they haven't broken any laws, right? This is a, a private issue and it should be a private issue. But with Philip Schofield, obviously Dan Wharton was one of the loudest voices um, in the media, sort of really ramping that story up the media agenda. With Hugh Edwards, Wharton was on holiday, but GB News was probably the, the outlet that was going hardest on him. And I think this has led lots of people to sort of ask the question, why is this Dan Wharton story, which is being sort of really gone hard or gone hard with by, by Byline Times are releasing sort of revelation after revelation or allegation after allegation, I should say. And it's not really getting picked up in in the other newspapers or outlets. Why is that? Why, why does there seem to be this double standard? Well, one theory um, is just he's less famous than the other two, which I think undoubtedly he is. He's very big deal in the industry. As you saw from those quotes, lots of people think of him as sort of the most powerful celeb journalist around, or at least he was when he was working for the for the Sun and the Mail. Now he's got more of a public-facing persona. But Hugh Edwards, of course, Philip Schofield, both household figures, Dan Witten, not so much. Another theory, though, which I do think is quite interesting, and I think probably has something to it, is about what kind of institutions would have made this a story that blows up. And I think they are, you know, the Sun, the Daily Mail, GB News. So when it came to Philip Schofield, when it came to Hugh Edwards, it was those institutions, The Sun, The Daily Mail and GB News that were really, really pushing, putting pressure on the BBC, etc. And if those three institutions are either your current employers or your former employers, um, then that gives you a degree of protection, I think, because no one is going to really go after their own or someone who was was once their own. I actually think a lot of people are sleeping on, on, on GB News as a, as a media brand and, and its ambitions. 
you know, Angelus Frangopoulos, I think, um, who's their top guy, said recently that they want to be, you know, the number one news media brand in this country by 2028. Now, with the BBC, that seems unlikely. But they're clearly highly ambitious in terms of market share with regards to radio, uh, with regards to their website, which has grown uh, to an extraordinary extent, and, of course, with broadcast TV. Uh, they are very ambitious. Now, if you look at Barb, the ARB, their ratings aren't going through the roof, but they're gently rising. While the trend is down, generally speaking, for Sky and the BBC, I think it's quite plausible that really it's a bigger media news brand than, say, Sky within within three to four years. I think that's very, very, very possible. Uh, and at which point you do need to have real scrutiny on people leading that project. And Dan Wooten was until recently, I suspect he still is, the host with the biggest audience on GB News. So despite the fact they have Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nigel Farage and Michelle Dubry, et cetera, um, or Eamon Holmes in the morning, big names, particularly Eamon Holmes and Farage, and you know you would expect them to have the biggest shows. Actually, Dan Wooten tends to get the biggest pull of anybody at GB News. And that, that's, the, that's the show, his show, which is a two-hour show. It seems to be building a really loyal audience. You know, he, he, he bangs on about Meghan and Harry and all sorts of stories like this in a way that, frankly, very few others do in the, in the British media landscape, simply because he has a two-hour sort of block every night to talk about this stuff. Um, and so the way he's behaved in the past is hugely relevant. If he's the star boy of a media brand which wants to be one of the country's biggest by 2028, then that's of huge public interest, of huge public interest. And Byline has done an extraordinary service by getting this journalism out there um, as promptly as it has. Uh, so I don't think it's tittle-tattle. I think it's very important. Now, finally, one of the reasons why I think it's not been reported to the same extent as Schofield and um, and Hugh Edwards, and I'm sure this pains Dan Woodson, is that he's just simply not a household name like those two are. Everybody in the country, Michael, has heard of Philip Schofield. That is why that story had legs. You know, I remember him from being five years old, watching him in the BBC broom cupboard with Gordon the Gopher, uh, all the way through now to him being, you know, he was until very recently one of the most marketable, bankable stars on ITV daytime television to a similar extent, Hugh Edwards. You know, this was the anchor man for the funeral of um, Queen Elizabeth II. I don't think you could really put Dan Woodson in the same category uh, as those two with regards to um, public recognition, although I'm sure he would like to be. Uh, I think that's why it's not been the same story. Clearly, if you had this kind of scoop on, on a Philip Schofield or a, or a Hugh Edwards, I think it would have broken into much of broadcast and print media. With Woodson, I think, like I say, because of his status it's being interpreted which i don't think it should be but it's being interpreted really as sort of inside baseball within the media rather than a story of real public interest and, and political interest too we've got a very quick story to end with hugh grant has waged a long-term campaign against the unaccountable power of britain's press and this week he gave a pretty powerful summary of his concerns to u.s show the view newspapers need power a lot of power yeah. they're really important to democracy but, he said pompously, with power comes responsibility. Yeah. And in Britain, it is a kind of uniquely UK problem. Yeah. Uh, there's no responsibility. And these big newspaper owners, largely non-taxpaying newspaper owners, yeah. are living above the law and invading the, the, the privacy of people whose kids have been killed in a road accident or whatever yeah. to get the sensational yeah. article. And no one dares to take them on in Britain because they're so scared of them, yeah. especially the politicians. And that's why... Politicians really, in my country, are chosen by the press. Our prime minister is largely chosen 
by dint of how much he's sucked up to the uh, to the to, to the newspaper barons. So that's what my campaign is is yeah. about. Aaron, I suppose when I when I watch that sort of the. What I'm thinking about is, is, is one, this seems like on the one hand, sort of a campaign by rich, wealthy celebrities. I mean, it, it does seem like, you know, their their privacy was invaded in a way which was un, unreasonable and unkind, but it's not exactly a priority of mine, the privacy of celebrities. But Hugh Edwards, sorry, not Hugh Edwards, um, Hugh Grant has combined that point with a critique of sort of the political power of, of, of the press and the newspaper yeah. barons. And I suppose my question to you, are those distinct problems with the media or is there a interrelationship between the sort of the ability of the the newspapers to sort of invade people's privacy and sort of take people's careers careers down through sort of revelations about them and their political power or are they two two sort of distinct problems and I mean personally I obviously care more about the political influence than I do about the sort of privacy concerns of celebrities but are they one and the same complaint or are they different No I think they're highly interconnected Michael um, if you, for instance, look at things like the, the, the scandal with regards to hacked voicemails, often that was used basically for celebrity tittle-tattle. But what it means, Michael, what it points to is that certain outlets in this country think they're above the law. Certain outlets in this country, as Mr. Grant says, overwhelmingly owned by uh, billionaires who don't pay tax uh, and aren't based or reside in the UK, they believe they can make or break people in the public eye as they please. And that applies not just to celebrities like Hugh Grant uh, and a host of others too, but also political figures, uh, none more so than Jeremy Corbyn. Huh? We saw that between 2015 and 2019, and even through to today, you know, The Sun, The Daily Mail, uh, they felt they could destroy this man simply because they disagreed with his politics. They can misrepresent who he was. Uh, so I think the criticisms being leveled by Hugh Grant matter just as much to top rank uh, political figures. Now, you might also say, well, what does that mean for the every person, uh, the average Joe? Why should they care? Well, what that does is it means they are less powerful. You know, one of the big criticisms I have about millionaires and billionaires isn't necessarily how much money they make, although I have a big problem with billionaires for sure. Uh, how you make that money often directly correlates with working class people missing out and being exploited. But an even bigger problem, I think, potentially, is what that money can buy in the political space. To what extent can a billionaire capture the political class and political influence merely as an outgrowth of their, of their wealth? And that's how we should look at newspapers like The Sun. The Sun is not a newspaper. The Sun is a project of, of political capture uh, overseen by a billionaire, not even based in the UK, and it goes under the sort of the auspices of being a newspaper and a media project. It's not. It's a lobbying organisation. It's a lobbying operation uh, on the behalf and in the interests of Mr Murdoch, his family, and the people he sees as being on his side, the wealthy, the 0.0001%. So I think it's hugely important, Michael. I think this is one of those rare instances where you know, lovey celebs and uh, the rest of us are very much on the same side. If you believe in one person, one vote, if you believe that uh, taking back control should actually mean something, then we have to oversee a great deal of reform with regards to our newspapers in this country. I mean, that was very well put and a great place to end tonight's show. Aaron, it's always an absolute pleasure being joined by you on a Friday evening. Michael, my pleasure. Quickly, on conscription, I'm not proposing military conscription. It was, it was abolished by Nixon precisely because it was politicizing 
um, the United States and particularly young men. It was making them more political. This idea was always a demand from the left. Not entirely true. A little bit of counter history there. Very interesting. I like that. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Have a great weekend. Hopefully the sun will stay out. Come back on Monday for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.